If you would, open your Bibles tonight to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And tonight we're going to pick it up in verse 27 of our study here in the book of Philippians. And we're going to make our way to chapter 2, verse 11. So that's going to be our focus tonight. And so far in our study of the book of Philippians, we have seen that Paul's heart was full of joy because of what God was doing amongst the believers in Philippi, and how they were growing and how God was working, as well as he was, his heart was full of joy because of what God was doing through him in prison, that the gospel was spreading throughout the whole palace guard. And because of it spreading to the palace guard, it was moving also into the household of Caesar. And because of that, we looked at this last week, the believers were being encouraged as well to share their faith. So Paul is overjoyed by all of that. But tonight as we come to verse 27, we're going to see that Paul's tone changes a bit. And he's concerned, you see, about the gospel continuing to advance there in Philippi. And he realizes that their conduct is going to play a part in that. That their conduct and the message and the advancement of the gospel go hand in hand. And so Paul is going to begin to address the idea of them having a conduct that is worthy of the gospel. We'll pick it up in verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So Paul is sharing his heart and his concern for the believers here in Philippi that whether he gets to come and see them or not, he wants to know that they are living lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, let your conduct, and that word conduct could be translated your manner of life. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And the word worthy, it speaks of, it's the idea of, of the scales and the balances. And so it's the idea of your life being weighed in the balance, that if you were to put your life on one side of the scale and the gospel on the other side of the scale, that they would match together, that they would look the same, that they would weigh as much and I want you to note that Paul is not just concerned about them individually, but he's also concerned about them corporately as it relates to their lives, their church, them as a group and as individuals having lives that would be worthy of the gospel. So he says that I may hear of your affairs, now note this, that you stand fast in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
When we read of that word striving together, it's what we would call synergy. Synergy is the increased effectiveness that results when two or more people are working together. And this reminds us that Christianity is a team sport. Notice Paul says, standing fast in one spirit, in one mind. There's a togetherness, striving together. The Greek word there is sunaleho. And it's a, the picture of an athletic team coming together and contending together where everybody's on the same page. They're locking arms together. They're going in the same direction. The idea is that I am putting aside my own personal preferences and my own personal agenda, and I want to do what's best for the team. It's putting aside, and if any of you guys played, you know, played uh, sports, you, you maybe heard this phrase of you know, somebody on the team saying, well, i, I got to get mine. You know? i got to get mine. I'm not bunting because I need to hit a home run. Or I'm not passing because i got to keep my average up and i got to hit that shot. Or you know, they, the quarterback better throw the ball to me because i got to get mine. It's putting aside all of that. Putting aside that sense of of my agenda, and I'm looking to see and do what is best for the team as a whole. So synergy is people people working together and moving in the same direction. Now, the opposite of synergy is what we would call sideways energy. That's when we're pulling in opposite directions. We're pulling against one another. Now, my wife and I experienced this once when we were on a vacation in, in Maui, and we decided that we were going to rent a tandem kayak. And so we got this tandem. I love to kayak. I, I have a, a kayak. I love going down to the harbor. I put my dog in it, and I paddle around. I have It's just a great, great time. And so I thought, this is going to be so much fun. We'll get a tandem kayak, and Denise and I can go out together. It was a disaster. Because we could just, we couldn't get in sync. And we were just pulling and paddling against one another. We're going in circles. And finally, my wife yells, Get me out of this boat. We had to get her own kayak so that we could, you know, go out and kayak together because it just wasn't working. There was no synergy. Now, I have good news for you your pastor and his wife. We have learned to paddle a kayak together, and we've learned to paddle in life together. We have synergy now. So, um, yeah, you can clap for that. But it took some practice on both fronts. So when the church loses its synergy, it gets focused. It's everybody, everybody getting focused on their own agendas. And, you know, I think the, when we talk about the big C church, the church as a whole, in the last 24 months, we lost our synergy. Because we got focused on just, we lost focus. Our focus became on politics and on masks and on vax or no vax and, and, and all of, of this type of thing that got us to the point where we're pulling in just opposite directions. 
I have a podcast that I do, The Basics of Life Conversations, and I interview you know, pastors and leaders on there. And um, over the last three months, at the end of the, the podcast, I always ask these two questions. I say, what, what, are you, what is your biggest concern for the Big C Church moving into 2022? And every single one of them, and we're talking probably 30 different guys, have said it's the division in the body of Christ. And then I ask them what they're most excited about moving into uh, 2022, and they you know, had different answers on that. But, but every single one of them, the division in the church. I, I do another uh, podcast, the Leadership Collective podcast with Ted Leavenworth at Reliance. We're doing one tomorrow with uh, four different pastors, and we're talking about that subject, the division in the body of Christ, and what can we do about it. I think we need to, as the body of Christ, keep the main thing, the main thing, and that's what we have on the wall out there when you come in the building. It's simply Jesus. And when a church is striving together for the faith of the gospel, it's powerful. There is strength, you see, in numbers. And that's Paul's focus in verses 28 through 30. This is what can happen. The first thing, number one, believers can be emboldened. That's what he says in verse 28, where we're no longer terrified at opposition. Number two, the work of the enemy is weakened and destroyed. That's what he means in the second part of verse 28 when he says it's proof of their perdition. That word perdition is destruction. The third thing that happens is the gospel advances. That's what he means in verse Verse 28, when he says, resulting in salvation from God. And the fourth thing that happens, believers are able to stand strong in the midst of opposition. And that's what he talks about in verse 29. So Paul exhorts individually that we would have a conduct, a manner of life that would be worthy of the gospel. And corporately, it would look like that we would be all striving together for the faith or the work of the gospel, or to put it simply, to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is simply Jesus. Now, in chapter 2, Paul's going to show us exactly how to do that. Notice verse 1. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation, that word means encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul is once again here stressing the importance of synergy. Having, he says, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. And in verse 5, he's going to tell us the kind of mind that he wants us to have when he says that we should have the mind of... Let the mind of Christ, he says, be in you. But first of all, he's going to contrast here two ways of thinking. Two ways of approaching things. The the world's way and Jesus' way. The world's way is self. He says, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That's the world's way. It's all about me. It's all about my agenda, my desires, my plan. The focus is on me. That's the world's mindset. But Jesus' way, he continues, but in lowliness of mind. That word means, that phrase means humility. In humility of mind, let us esteem Others better than ourselves. 
I like the way the NIV puts it. It says, let us value others as better than ourselves. I love that word, value. Let us value others. When you value something, you protect it, right? When you value something, you, you want to take care of it. You keep it in a special place. You might you know, keep it locked in a safe, or you might have a special protective cover over it. You, you're valuing something, and you, you, you want to take care of it. You want to you protect it. When you value others above yourself, verse 4 is what happens when he says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Listen, a great way to value others, this is what Paul is teaching us, a great way to value others is to show interest in things that interest them even when it doesn't interest you. Let me say that again. A great way to value others is to show interest in things that interest them even when it doesn't interest you. I had to learn this with my son, Aaron, as he was growing up. You see, me and my dad, we had this incredible connection with one another because we were both into sports. And so that was kind of our thing. And we would get together. We would watch ball games together. We would talk sports. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching the end of that Bills-Chiefs game. Did anybody see that, man? Three touchdowns and two field goals in the last two minutes of the game. It was incredible. I'm yelling at the television, and I'm thinking, man, I wish my dad was here. My dad's in heaven. He could care less about football. But... uh <laughs> But I'm like, man, I wish he was here, you know. And we had that bond and we had that connection. But God gave me a son who had zero interest in sports. He didn't like sports at all. It was too slow for him. It was too boring for him. And, and so Aaron, you know, he's creative. His interest was in building things and creating things. And his interest was in art. And, and, that. and those are all things that I'm not good at, Okay. Those are all things that I, I don't know how to do. I mean, I can't even draw a good stick figure. So, you know, it was just, it was sad. But I had to intentionally make an effort to show an interest in things that didn't interest me. So I'd come along and he'd be playing with his Legos or whatever. And like, hey, what are you building, son? You know, I'd get down there and, you know, he'd be showing me or, you know, he'd be making something when he got into computers. You know, what are you making there? And, and I don't even understand it, but he's trying to tell me it's still that way today. <laughs> but, um, you know, or he got into to video games. I don't like video games. I am not a gamer. If you're a gamer, it's okay, it's your thing, but I'm not a gamer. But I would say, hey, son, can I play with you? So we'd play like Mario Kart, remember that, you know? And he would absolutely destroy me, you know, at Mario Kart. It, and I don't like to lose in things, you know? But, but he would like destroy me, but it was like, hey, I'm entering into his world. And so you value others by intentionally showing interest in things that don't normally interest you. But here's what often happens when you do that. There's a connection that happens, and you might find that you end up gaining interest in those things that didn't interest you. This happened to my wife. You know, on Sundays, after doing three services and talking for, you know, three or four hours, um, I go home, and, and I kind of don't want to talk for a little bit. And so uh, I get lunch, and I sit on the couch, and usually I'll maybe put on the golf tournament, you know, and 
Well, my wife started coming and sitting down with me. She had no interest in golf. She didn't even understand golf, you know. But she'd come and start sitting down, you know, just because she wanted to be by me and wanted to show interest in something that, you know, I was interested in. So she'd start watching, you know, a bit of the golf tournament, became a big Phil Mickelson fan, like crazy Phil Mickelson fan, you know. But it was interesting to see how her, that it changed for her. She started getting into, you know, watching football with me. And, so, and she actually got more into it than I did. I mean, she'd be yelling at the TV, and a couple of times I had to say, honey, I'm rooting for the other team, you know? But she would just, like, you know, get into it, like, you know? And, and it happened where suddenly things that she had no interest in, she became interested in because she chose to value me by showing interest in something that didn't interest her at all. So when you show interest in something that interests someone else, you're validating them. You're saying, I care enough about you to get interested in what you are interested in. And when we do that, we become more like Jesus. And when we do that, we actually are reflecting the gospel. Now, Paul's going to give us here the ultimate example of this in verse 5 when he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Here's what Paul's telling us. Jesus esteemed you and I and our need of salvation as being greater than his position there at the right hand of God the Father. He saw you and I and our need of salvation as being greater than his need to uphold that place of dignity. And so he lays that aside, and he humbles himself, Paul says. And he comes to this earth, and he becomes a servant, so much so that he would go to the cross and die on that cross to pay the price for our sins. It's the ultimate example of esteeming others above yourself. Jesus did that for us. But these verses here in verses 5 through 8, are some of the most powerful and profound verses in all of Scripture, in all the New Testament. And rather than just just seeing this analogy, I I want us to to break it down for a few minutes. Notice there in verse 6, he says, who being in the form of God. And when we hear the word form, we think of outward appearance. We think of size and shape, but that's not the word that Paul's using here. If Paul wanted to talk about outward form, he would have used the Greek word schema. He doesn't use that word. And the thing about schema or the outward form is it's always changing, right? I mean, we, we go through that. I mean, we, some of us, we're, we're changing every week. We might change our, our look. We might get a haircut. We might color our hair. You know, we might, you know, our, our weight is going up and down. And, you know, we're, our outward form is changing all the time. You know, since January, probably like some of you, I decided I'm going on a diet. I'm going to get in shape. I got back in the gym. And I've been doing pretty good. But yesterday, I just had, I had a bad day. You ever get that, those days you just get, you just want to snack? And I just was snacking all day long. And I got up this morning and I got on the scale and I lost a pound. <laughs> 
wasn't that awesome, you know. I ate horrible. I'm starting the ice cream diet tomorrow, all right? You know, but, but our outward form, it's changing all the time. That's what scheme is. It's always changing. But that's not the word that Paul uses here. The word that Paul uses here is morphe, which speaks of essence, nature, and character. He's saying that Jesus is the exact essence, nature, and character of the Father. In the book of Hebrews, it gives us some insight into this. When it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Notice it doesn't say that Jesus was a reflector of the glory of God's glory. No, He's the radiance of it. He's the one who radiates the glory of God. An imprint, today we would say he is the perfect match. He's the perfect fingerprint, or he's the perfect DNA. So what Paul is saying in using this term, being in the form of God, is that Jesus Christ possessed the unchangeable, essential nature, character, and glory of God. Paul is taking us back to the throne room pre-incarnation pre-Jesus leaving heaven and coming to this earth, and he's telling us this is how Jesus existed. He was the very essence, nature, character, and glory of God. That's why Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was fully God in essence, nature, and character. But Paul continues, who being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, at first glance, that sounds like a weird phrase. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God because we think of robbery as something when you take something that doesn't belong to you. And that is a definition of robbery. But there's another definition that was used in that culture for this idea of robbery, and it meant this, a prize or a treasure to be clutched or retained at all costs. That's the way Paul's using it here. He's saying that Jesus, being in the form of God, did not view his position of being equal to God as something that he had to hold on to and not let go of at all costs. Think of it this way. When the idea was presented that Jesus would leave heaven and come to this earth and that he would not come in his glory, but he would come as a man, Jesus didn't respond, no way, I'm not doing that. I'm not going down there and, and laying aside you know, my glory. If I go down there, they're going to know exactly who I am. I'm coming in royalty and majesty. No, he didn't do that. Jesus was willing to be emptied. And notice how Paul puts it in verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation, coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man. Here's what Jesus did. Here's how he was emptied. Jesus emptied himself by allowing his glory to be concealed in his humanity. He was fully man, but also fully God. But his glory was concealed in his humanity. You you didn't see it. You know, when the soldiers were going to arrest Jesus, and they asked Judas, how will we know which one he is? Judas didn't say, he'll be the one with the glowing head. You know, he didn't say that. He said, no, I'll greet him with a kiss. That's how you're going to know who he is. Now, 
Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of the glory that was concealed in his humanity on the Mount of Transfiguration when it says that Jesus was suddenly there with Moses and Elijah and he was shining like the sun. And so the glory that was inside of his humanity, that was concealed in his humanity, they saw a glimpse of it. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus would say in John chapter 17, verse 5, he says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. This is right before he's going to the cross. Glorify me together with yourself, which I had with you before the world was. He's telling us that he longed to get back into that setting where his glory was on full display. So he emptied himself of his glory by allowing it to be concealed in his humanity, and he emptied himself of his independent authority. Again, verse 7, he says, taking the form of a bondservant. A bondservant was a willing servant. You see, in that culture, a slave would serve his master for seven years, but after seven years, he could go free. But if he really, really enjoyed the family that he was serving, he could say, um, you know what, I'd like to stay apart and continue to work for you. And they would call him a bond servant. He'd get a special earring and mark, you know, uh, that, that everybody, everybody would know that he was a, a willing servant, a bond servant. That's what Jesus was. He was a bond servant, a willing servant. He was in complete and willful submission to the plan of the Father. Jesus would say in John 5, verse 30, I do not seek my own will, I seek the will of him who sent me. So he empty, he was emptied of his independent authority, his rights, his needs, his desire. He said, look, this is what I'm about. I'm about my father's business. So this is the picture that Paul is painting for us. That this is where Jesus was in, in heaven, in in, in glory, in a place of being equal with the Father. But he leaves all of that. He empties himself. He comes down to this earth. He allows his glory to be concealed in his humanity. He makes himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of his independent authority, and he makes himself subject to his Father. And Paul is continuing to build on this picture in verse 8 when he says, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I want you to note that. Jesus humbled himself. No one humbled him. Herod didn't humble him. Pilate didn't humble him. The high priest did not humble him. The Romans, you know, they're, they're beating him and stripping him, and they might think that they were humble. They didn't humble. He humbled himself. He was the humblest human being that has ever lived. And that's why Paul would say there in verse 5, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And I was thinking about this this week. How at the baptism of Jesus, as he walks down in the water and the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And what's interesting about that, Jesus hadn't done a single miracle, hadn't preached a single sermon, hadn't healed anyone, hadn't multiplied any loaves and fish at, at that time. For 30 years, He had been living in obscurity in Nazareth, working in a carpenter shop. God in human flesh, and nobody even knew who he was. And yet the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I think that God 
was referencing everything that Paul's writing about here, of what Jesus did to empty himself, to come to this earth, to become a servant, a bond servant, to be humbled, to be of no reputation where nobody knew him. He wasn't seeking that at all. And he would go to the cross. And I think there's a word of encouragement for us in this That when we seek to walk in the same mind as Jesus, where we're committed to the plan of the gospel and the mission of God, the Father is well pleased with us. He says, that's my beloved son. That's my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Verse 9, we see the results. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what we learn from the example of Jesus, that the way up is down. When we humble ourselves and we submit ourselves to God, the Bible says that He will exalt us. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And listen, you might not be exalted here, but you will be exalted there. And that's all that matters. Because later is longer, right? Eternity is a long time. That's what matters. So Jesus goes to the cross. He, he dies for our sins. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. Forty days after that, he ascends into heaven. And I want you just to imagine the reception that he got when he comes back into glory. Paul says, listen, one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we can bow now, which is the smart thing to do, being submitted to him. Or you can wait and bow later, but later could end up being too late. Because all the world is going to one day acknowledge that one we crucified, that one we rejected, he was God. He's the Lord. He's the King. Amen? Let's pray. King Jesus, we want to submit our hearts to you tonight. We want to humble ourselves before you tonight. Lord, as Rachel brought our attention to John the Baptist, who said, he must, I, must, or he, I must decrease that he would increase. Lord, I think that's true in every single one of our lives. And God, I pray that as we enter into these groups right now, that we would have the mind of Christ, that we would esteem others, is better than ourselves. That we would value one another by listening as we share our hearts, as we discuss your word. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.